Today's scripture is 1 Peter 4, verses 1 through 6. Please stand, if you are able, for the reading of God's word. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we're picking up our study of 1 Peter after pausing last week to consider Jesus' claim, I am the resurrection and the life on Easter Sunday. And uh, we're picking up in a place that's actually a great place to pick up for the, the Sunday after Easter. Because in, a, in essence, what Peter is doing here in this passage is answering the question, how do we live in light of Easter? I say that because of the first two words in uh, verse 1 of chapter 4, since therefore. What's the therefore? What's he referring to? Well, he's referring back to chapter 3, verse 18, where he writes, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So back there in 3.18, Christ suffered once for sins. Jesus Christ went to the cross. He offered himself as the substitute for sin in our place. His resurrection from the dead verified that his sacrifice was accepted by God. His resurrection from the dead gave us a preview of the life of the kingdom that will come in full upon his return. So here in verse 1, since therefore, Peter is saying, Jesus did that, now you live this way. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So there it is again. We've talked about the indicative preceding the imperative, that which is true in Scripture, God's grace preceding that which we're called to, to do, obedience to his commands. And we saw it already earlier in uh, 1 Peter, and we see it again here, 3.18. This is what Jesus Christ has done, 4.1 and following. Consequently, this is how we are to live as his people. So what is true? Christ died, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. What must we do? Peter doesn't just say in verse 1 of chapter 4, arm yourselves with a new way of thinking. He says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, with Christ's way of thinking. So the, the thing we need to wrestle with this morning is what is Christ's way of thinking? What, what does Peter teach us in this passage about the way Jesus thinks? But Peter also uses the phrase flesh several times in this passage, perhaps most pointedly in verse 2, where he writes, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And so drawing out from that, there ought to be this sense of urgency. 
right? The time in the flesh is the time that we have left before we die. How are we going to live? Or maybe better, what are we going to live for in the days that remain in our life? In short, I think this passage as a whole is a call for Christians to wake up. It's a call for us to wake up. So what does Peter teach us in this passage that, what, what, uh, that must characterize us in the time that remains? What is he calling us to wake up to? What do Christians look like who have left the old behind and have armed themselves with Christ's way of thinking? And there's three things I think we're going to see in this passage. First, such Christians live with a higher ambition than self-gratification. A higher ambition than self-gratification. Second, such Christians demonstrate a willingness to suffer for the sake of Christ. And then third, such Christians demonstrate a sense of urgency because the day of judgment is drawing near. So first, a higher ambition. Second, a willingness to suffer. And then third, a sense of urgency. That's where we're headed. Let's start by praying. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this portion of your word. And Lord, we come acknowledging that in so many ways we live for things other than what you're calling us to live for. And help us to be convinced that we are missing out. And help us to recognize that to be a follower of Christ means that we are all in. That we're seeking to live for your glory. And, and though we stumble and though we sin, we give evidence that we have made a break with that as the operating and controlling principle in our lives. Lord, we need to be convinced down deep concerning that, and Lord, we need to be ultimately changed by your Spirit to live that way. We thank you for the power that is in your Word because your Spirit applies it to us, and we ask that you would do that even now. In Jesus' name, amen. So first, a higher ambition than self-gratification. Look with, verse, with me at verses 1 and 2. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So a number of questions, right, that, that come as we read that passage. First of all, what was Christ's way of thinking that he's calling us to arm ourselves with? And then second, whoever suffers in the flesh has ceased from sin? What is Peter saying there? Really, there's two questions there. How does, I mean, does suffering somehow eliminate sin like the two go together? And, and then I stop sinning? Is Peter really saying that I'll never sin again if I've armed myself with Christ's way of thinking? Well, the answer to the question, what was Christ's way of thinking, is right there in verse 1. So take a look again. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. And then here it is. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. In other words, the one who suffers in the flesh is done with sin. They're through with sin. That is the way of thinking. The better translation, the resolve that Jesus Christ demonstrated throughout his, his life. That those who suffer for obedience to the will of God for the will of God, those who suffer because of their obedience to the will of God, prove that they have made a break 
with sin as the operating principle in their life. They're no longer living for sin. They're no longer pursuing human passions. That's no longer what drives them. The very fact that they suffer for their obedience proves that they have made a break with that, that that's no longer the driving force in their life. Now, of course, Jesus was without sin. There was no ceasing from sin for Jesus because there was never any starting of sin for Jesus. But Jesus did face the temptation to go the easy way, to follow the easy path. What was the temptation in the wilderness if not that? Don't go down this hard path of obedience to the Father. I offer you an easier way. And don't think that because Jesus was fully God that he wasn't also fully man and in his human nature struggled just as we do, yet without sin, with the temptation to follow human passion and not suffer for being obedient to Jesus Christ. Jesus, I mean, to God the Father. Jesus had to consistently choose to obey God in the face of temptation. He did. I mean, that characterized his life in a way that we can't even fully comprehend. He had to consistently choose to follow the way of his Father, even, so, even though doing so meant suffering and ultimately death. <clears throat> his way of thinking, his resolve was to live for God's will and not for sinful human passions, even though it meant he would suffer. And what Peter is saying is that as Christians, we now need to arm ourselves with that way of thinking. That we will live for God's will and not for our sinful human passions, even though it will mean suffering. So, Peter gives this long list of things that have to do with self-gratification. Take a look at verse 3. We'll come back to this a little bit later. But he writes there, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties. And then we'll talk about lawless idolatry in a minute. It's a long list of things. And we may look at that and say, Well, you know, I don't... Drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, sens sensuality, passions. Have you ever inordinately desired or longed for anything? Go ahead and read the, the list of vices throughout the New Testament. We find ourselves here, just as we find ourselves in every vice list that's offered in the New Testament, even if we can't point to one and say, uh, not that one. Peter says the time is past for living that way and challenges us to answer the question, how are we going to spend the rest of the time that we have on this earth? What will be the operating principle in our life? For what will we be living? And that's the challenge in verse 2. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Those who suffer for Christ, which we're going to get into more in the next point, and endure, here's the thing, prove that in principle, though not always in practice, they have made a break with sin as the operating principle in their life. They consider the time that has passed as sufficient for living with that as our ambition. 
self-gratification in whatever form as the thing that we're after, the thing that we're pursuing. But rather, though we still sin, we've made a break with that as the driving force in our life. And instead, the evidence that we are actually pursuing and willing to uh, pursue the will of God is the fact that we endure in that even though we suffer. And so Christians, Peter is saying, are characterized, must be characterized by a higher ambition than self-gratification. The people reading this letter then and now have a choice to make. Will we take the easy path? Will we go with the flow? Will we not rock the boat? Will we seek to just blend in? You know, avoid being considered judgmental because we don't do the things that everyone's doing even though we're simply living distinctive Christian lives? Or will we be obedient to God and suffer the consequences for it? That's what it means to follow the example of Christ. We, t- we talked about this back in chapter 2. Let me just read it again for us. Verses 19 to 21. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So again, is Peter saying that we stopped sinning? No, He's not. And by experience, we all recognize, of course, that we still do. But those armed with Christ's resolve are no longer characterized as those who are living for sin. There is a higher ambition than self-gratification, nothing less than living for the glory of God. Now again, before we hear that and hear Mark, you're being so legalistic. Remember, the motivating factor is the grace of God. Because Jesus did this for you, assuring for you your standing before God. I love the way Carl prayed it earlier. Because Christ is risen, we know that now God looks at Jesus, his son, and sees his righteousness in our place. Because of that glorious truth, we now live this way, compelled by his grace constrained by his love to live this way. Second, a willingness to suffer for the sake of Christ. Take a look at verses 3 and 4. For the time is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. Stop there for a second. Christians in the first century were seen as people who did not know how to have fun. Some things never change. It wasn't true, of course. They were characterized by joy. They were characterized by a deep sense of fulfillment, hope, as Peter told us earlier in this passage, a hope that would ultimately provoke questions in the, in the minds of people who were not Christians and looked at them and said, how, how could you have such hope? in the face of death. Yet, because Christians would, for instance, look at the theater in Roman culture 
that was decidedly not safe for work and say, not for me. Or consider the blood and the gore of the gladiator fights and say, not interested. Or when it came to the other socially acceptable practices, the things that everybody did, sex outside of marriage, drunkenness, lying and cheating at every turn, and say, not an option for me, they were considered to be, well, you know, what our grandparents might say, prudes. No fun. But it wasn't just that. Peter talks about something here when he talks about lawless idolatry that there's, there's actually, I think, increasingly more of an overlap that we need to recognize between what they experienced in their day and what we are experiencing in our day. Peter there is talking about this idea of, of emperor worship in the Roman Empire, of off burning incense to the emperor as a way of demonstrating your allegiance to the Roman Empire. Karen Jobes in her commentary uh, writes this, or, or mentions that the burning of incense to the emperor was a sign of civic gratitude. Doing it assured the well-being of the empire. And not doing it revealed to others around you that you must be a traitor to the very Roman way of life. Now, Dan Doriani, in his commentary on 1 Peter, says, you know what, how do we apply that today? Imagine if, you know, Independence Day celebrations were mandatory, like you had to go to them. I think that's helpful, but honestly, I don't think it goes far enough because you can be of different political parties and different political persuasions and still stand shoulder to shoulder at an Independence Day parade and, and wave, you know, an American flag. So it's a little bit beyond that in terms of the parallel, if we're going to make one, between our day and Peter's day. Imagine if at your compulsory attendance to the 4th of July parade, it was mandated that you waved not an American flag, but a rainbow flag. And that if you didn't do so, you were seen by your neighbors to be part of the problem with our society. Part of the reason why things aren't the way that they ought to be. Now, I may sound far-fetched. I acknowledge that. But I would like to point out that sometime in the next couple weeks, the Equality Act is going to be taken up by the House of Representatives, an act that seeks to amend two civil rights laws in our land that changes the definition of sex from not simply biological male and female, but would also now cover sexual orientation and gender identity. Now, what impact might that have on us as followers of Jesus Christ? Alexander T. Walker, in an article for the Gospel Coalition, wrote this, The Equality Act represents the most invasive threat to religious liberty ever proposed in America. Given that it touches on areas of education, public accommodation, employment, and federal funding, were it to pass its sweeping effects on religious liberty, free speech, and freedom of conscience would be both historic and also chilling. Virtually no area of American life would emerge unscathed. No less significant would be the long-term effects of how the law would shape the moral imagination of future generations. It is time for Christians to wake up. That doesn't mean we take up arms 
It does mean we take up our cross and we're willing to suffer for the name of Christ as we, with, with grace and love and charity, speak truth, but also remain faithful to Christ, no matter the cost. Are we ready to suffer for the cause of Christ? A few things to remember as we think about suffering for the sake of Christ. First, we need to remember who we are. Peter's been driving at this throughout this letter. He starts off in chapter 1 by saying, listen, aliens and exiles. He's calling us to remember who we are. We're people who don't quite fit in in this world in which we live. This world in which we live, in a sense, is not our home. We're living for something more than this world and its pleasures have to offer. And so therefore, it seems like we're from somewhere else. We need to remember who we are. We need to expect opposition. Karen Jobes, again, in her commentary on 1 Peter, quotes uh, Oikumenius, who's a theologian from the 8th century. He wrote this. What applied in the 1st century, what applied in the 8th century, applies in the 21st century. Listen. Not only do the Gentiles wonder at the change in you, Not only does it make them ashamed, but they also attack you for it. For the worship of God is an abomination to sinners. There are places that you used to go that you just can't go anymore. There are things that you used to do that you just can't do anymore. There are people with whom the nature of your relationship must change. And that will lead to tension. Why aren't you doing this anymore will inevitably lead to why are you judging me for doing this? Even though all you're seeking to do is live a distinctly Christian life. That's the flow in verse 4. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. So what do we do? Well, what we do when that happens is what we've already seen back in chapter 2, verse 23. Jesus, as our example, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's what we're called to do. Continue to entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. The judgment of the world upon us is not the final word concerning us. Entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. Those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ will be vindicated in the end. Those who suffered in Sri Lanka in this past, a week ago, those who have been uh, violated and, and, and murdered and have suffered for the cause of Christ around the world, Christ will be their vindication in the end. However, what Peter calls us to in the rest of this passage is to not simply sit back and wait for vindication, but to actually, because of the reality of judgment that is to come, take the gospel to people before it's too late. So take a look at verses 5 and 6 as we consider, third, a sense of urgency because the time for judgment is drawing near. Verse 5, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God 
does. All right, what's going on here? What do we do with verse 6? Because that's the most obvious thing where you're like, to the dead? And it, it's easy to say, well, maybe he means the spiritually dead. You know, like, like people who are alive, but they're dead spiritually speaking, and so the gospel was preached to them. But that's not what he was saying. Because in verse 5, it's very clear that what he means by the living and the dead are those who are physically alive and those who are physically dead. And so in verse 6, he's saying the gospel was preached to those who are physically dead. So what do we do with that? And some have said, well, there must be a connection here with, between this and chapter 3, verse 19, where it talks about Jesus descending into prison and different word, proclaiming something. And, and there's no connection. I don't have time to prove it, but there's no connection between 4.1 and 3.19. There are linguistic reasons why they, they don't make sense to be together. So what do we do with this? Well, we need to understand something of the pagan background, the, the Greco-Roman background, when it came to the way people thought about death in order to understand what Peter is saying here. The way that people in that culture thought about death was quite simply that once you died, there would no longer be any accounting for what you had done while you were alive. I mean, when you're dead, you're dead. And so there may have been all these good things that you did. There may have been all these bad things that you did. But once you're dead, there's not going to be any holding you to account for that. So pagans would say, once you're dead, it doesn't matter what you did when you were alive. Christians were saying, there's a judgment that's coming. Everything that you did while you were alive matters. Because once you're dead, there's no forgiveness for what you did when you were alive. And so what Peter is saying here is therefore, again, verse 6 begins, for this reason, therefore, that's why the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead. Because while they are alive, they need to hear this message. Because now that they're dead, it's too late. So there needs to be this sense of urgency. People who were, this is verse 5, Verse 5, Peter is simply saying, people who reject the gospel, people who malign Christians because of what they believe, will give an account to God on the last day. Being dead doesn't excuse them from having to give an account to God. Therefore, verse 6, that's why the gospel was preached to those who are now dead. Implication, that's why the gospel must continue to be preached to those who are still in the land of the living because once they are among the land of the dead, it's too late. And so there needs to be a sense of urgency for us as Christians. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I'm pretty sure most of what I've said has left you feeling offended. And that's okay. The gospel is offensive. But let me say, even as I acknowledge that, that there is no more important thing for you to reckon with than the reality that once you are dead, there is a God who exists that will judge you based on your deeds in the flesh. And there is not one of us in this room who could point to our deeds and say, surely God will accept us. Not one. It is only because Jesus Christ went to the cross and died as our substitute and rose to prove that his sacrifice was accepted that those who put their trust in him receive forgiveness and can know that when that judgment day comes, we will not be judged according to our record, but rather will be judged according to Christ's righteousness. There has to be an urgency when it comes to us as Christians proclaiming that gospel message. And if you're here and your hope is not in Christ, for you, 
receiving the truth of that message and putting your trust in Jesus Christ because the days are short. Christians who have armed themselves with Christ's resolve are characterized by a higher ambition than self-gratification, a willingness to suffer for the sake of Christ, and a sense of urgency because the day of judgment is drawing near. Let me end by asking this question. Where does the church do the work of arming herself with Christ's resolve? Yes, the home. I don't discount the home by any stretch of the imagination. But where do we aliens and exiles, the people of the risen king, arm ourselves with the king's resolve? And the answer is here. The worship service, the foundational discipleship that happens on Sunday morning before the service, the growth groups that meet throughout the week where people experience deep community around God's word, these are the environments in which God's people arm themselves with Christ's way of thinking. That's why a robust discipleship ministry is mission critical for the church. It has always been, of course, but over the course of the past 50 years, churches in America have seemed desperate to outdo one another in their quest for superficiality, a.k.a. relevance. Well, at the same time, the culture has sunk deeper and deeper into sin. And now we find ourselves in this post-Christian secular age. What will it take for the church to fulfill the Great Commission in our cultural moment? Flashier programming? People who have armed themselves with Christ's way of thinking. That it is better to suffer for obedience than to live another day in the way of sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to receive the challenge from this passage. That the time has passed for living for the things that characterized us before you granted us the grace to put our hope in Jesus Christ for our salvation. And that now the call is for us to, to wake up, to live instead for your will, to put on the same way of thinking, to arm ourselves with Christ's resolve. We look to you for that, confessing our weakness, recognizing that the same grace by which you have saved us is the grace that we need to carry on each and every day. In our hearts, in our flesh, we are weak, but you by your spirit in us, you're strong. And in our weakness, we experience more of your strength. And so we come acknowledging our weakness, acknowledging the need, desiring to live for you and asking that you would give us the strength and the power to do so. And we ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.